0: This evening we will be continuing our series through the canons of Dort. We will be looking at heading number 2, section article 8, The Saving Effectiveness of Christ's Death. Then from there we'll be moving to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, reading verses 11 through 14. So Article 8, Canons of Dort. The saving effectiveness of Christ's death. For it was entirely, it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones, in order that we might grant justif- justifying faith to them only, and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language, all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should grant them faith, which like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. Now, moving to Holy Scripture, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. So, Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 11 through 14 And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the question before us this evening from the canon is this. Who did Christ's complete and successful work on the cross, who was that for? At the heart of this article of the doctrine is that Christ is the complete Savior, both in earning and giving salvation. which means that the only thing that we can contribute to our salvation is our sin. So let us unpack what this all means. Our theme this evening as we examine Scripture is salvation and the sufficiency of our Savior. We'll unpack this in three points. We'll see point number one, he provides a sufficient sacrifice. Point number two, he provides a sufficient purification, and three, sufficient only for his bride. So the author of the Hebrews contrasts two systems of sacrifices, the Old Testament system and Christ in his priestly office. Now what was the function of the Levitical priest and what was the function of Christ as he exercised his priestly office? The text shows us that every priest under the old covenant stands. And we read from scripture, scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, that at that time the Lord set apart a tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord. To minister to him and to bless in his name. To this day, see, every priest stands and ministers before the Lord because their work is daily. It's perpetual. It's an ongoing work. A commentator pointed out that of all the furniture in the temple or the tent, there is a table, there is a lamp, an altar of incense, And there's the ark. But there was no chair for the priest to sit on. And the priest would have to offer daily sacrifices to the Lord. And we read about this in Exodus 29 and Numbers 28. And then I'll turn there real quickly and read these first eight verses. This is Numbers 28. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my food offering, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs a year without blemish, day by day as a regular offering the one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of flour for a grain offering mixed with a quarter of a hen of beaten oil. It is a regular burn offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen for each lamb In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight like a grain offering of the morning. And like its drink offering, you shall offer it as food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This was done daily a regular offering throughout the generations. The priests were busy at work every day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And this does not include the different offerings brought by the people. For example, burnt offerings, their grain offerings or peace offerings, sin offerings or guilt offerings. But also on top of all of that, there were other offerings like Sabbath offerings offered every Sabbath day. There were monthly offerings offered at the beginning of every month throughout the whole year. There were Passover offerings, offerings for the feasts of weeks, offerings for the Feast of trumpets, offerings for the Day of atonement and offerings for the Feast of Booths. The logistics of organizing all this would be an event in itself. Not to mention the work of the priests having to prepare all these sacrifices. And then you have the death of Nadab and Abihu lingering in the back of your head, making sure that everything is done in proper and good order. And after all the work the priests put into their tasks, all the manual labor of preparing the animals, preparing their tools... The offering of the same sacrifices every single day repeatedly illustrating the futility of their ministry because it does not take away sin. If the same sacrifices are offered every day repeatedly, they're not securing for the people final and definite forgiveness. And if we think about it, how could they? First scripture reminds us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And God will not punish any creature for what a human is guilty of. Because God's justice requires that man must pay for his sins. Not to mention that God's wrath is infinite. And creatures are finite. And how can the finite repay the infinite? There's no beginning or end to God. So how can man who has a beginning, who has an end, satisfy the wrath of the infinite God? It would have to be a perpetual sacrifice there would have to be repeated sacrifice every day for the rest of man's life and a re- and repetition forever would never offer any rest you would never have the chance to sit because you would be always working and also there would be that constant reminder of your sin of your guilt of your misery, assaulting your conscience with never a moment of peace. Now if this system could never take away sins and show the incomplete work of the priest, so then why did the offerer place his hand on the animal and have his guilt symbolically transferred to that animal? and then have that animal killed and its blood poured out as a substitute? And why then was the offer of the sacrifice cleared of his sin and guilt as the animal takes the penalty on their behalf? If this system does not work because it needs repeating, then why use it? Because it pointed to something better. It pointed to someone who could be your substitute, who could step into your place on your behalf and take away your sin. It was a type. It was a shadow of what was to come. The sacrificial system was implemented to deal with sin. It showed the people how much they sinned. It showed them the problem of sin and how man cannot deal with the consequences of sin. That because of sin, they will receive no rest. And it pointed to something greater, something sufficient that the blood of goats and bulls could not do. See, it points to Christ. And only Christ. Christ that he is the only one that can achieve what the priest labored for daily, repeatedly. He checks all the boxes. He fits the mold. See, first Christ had a human nature, but not just any human nature. He had a righteous human nature without spot or blemish, without the guilt or stain of sin. He was true and righteous man, but he needed to be more than that. Human nature alone, even though it's perfect, even though it's without sin, it's still insufficient to remove the guilt of sin. Because again, human nature is still finite. And how can a finite person repay what is infinite? How can the finite wrath of God be satisfied by something created, something finite? See, there's always going to be a remainder to that equation. That is why he must also be truly God. So that the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath. See, only in Jesus Christ, who was truly man and truly God, can this be achieved. Only on Christ can a transfer of your guilt be placed. And only his righteousness, credit to you, will satisfy the wrath of the living God. See, only Christ can take your place. He dies instead of you, incurring all your sins, and you are the one that's freed. And He is the only one able, the only one sufficient, the only one adequate to take away your sin and free you from the guilt. And He accomplished this all with just a single sacrifice a sacrifice so perfect that it does not have to be repeated a single sacrifice that removes the guilt of sin and breaks down the power of sin. See, the old priest must operate daily, offering repeated sacrifices, but Christ's sacrifice is effective forever. It never needs duplication, never needs, never requiring replication a single perfect sacrifice that took away sins of his people. It was finished. And Christ entered the heaven and took his place at the seat of honor at the right hand of God. And since his work is finished, he does not need to remain standing like the priests of the old who had to continue their work. Christ sat at the right hand of the Father And when Christ sat at the right hand of the Father as the priest-king, he was triumphing over sin and over death and now sharing in the rule of God. He sits as he waits for all of his enemies to be placed under his footstool. See, Christ is now sitting and waiting for the appropriate time. He labored, and now he awaits the harvest, the time of the separation from the wheat, from the chaff all those who oppose him his authority his power his dominion Christ waits for the father at the father's right hand for the final destruction of all his enemies see there are only two places for you in this world You either reign with Jesus as an adopted son or daughter of the living God or you are under his footstool, his enemy, awaiting the judgment and consequences of your sin. See, only in Christ there's no other way to climb out from behind and underneath that footstool. There is no other way for you to atone for your sin. Only in Christ is there peace and is there rest. It's only in Him. See, we see the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. It has completed what the Old Testament priest could never accomplish. We understand that sin has been atoned for and that we're righteous before God. But have you ever thought how this might practically unfold? How do we receive from Christ sufficient purification? See, every believer in Jesus Christ receives benefits from him. We receive forgiveness of sins, a cleansed conscience, peace with God, assurance of salvation and eternal life, all which we receive by faith. He gives us a justifying faith that leads to salvation. And the benefits start with the removal of the penalty of sin. This means that original sin, that guilt imputed from Adam's first sin, is washed clean from you. When Christ went to the cross for you, when he hung there fully exposed, his sacrifice was greater than the blood of bulls and goats. His blood removed the penalty, the penalty of death that God's justice requires. See, remember, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Because the curse of sin is death. Payment is required. So because of Christ, no longer are you on the outside of the kingdom of God. What was broken and lost in Adam was regained in Christ. The guilt of Adam's sin was atoned for. And the consequences of Adam's sin are removed. But not only Adam's original sin, but all the sins of Christ's bride, have been washed clean. That means all your sins before and after you confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior have been atoned for. The sins that were committed before faith in Christ, sins while you were at enmity with Christ, while you hated Him, while you wanted nothing to do with Him, when you mocked Him, when you scoffed at his name, when you loved your sin more than you loved him, all these sins were placed upon his shoulders of Christ, and he atoned for them all. And not only these, but also the sins after you've come faith in Christ. All the sins that you commit even though you should know better all the sins that you commit just after you confess, how much you love him. How much you look at him with adoration. All those times you'd rather succumb to temptation. When you'd rather sin than suffer for your Lord. See, when you ask for forgiveness from your Heavenly Father, all those sins are forgiven also. And does this not magnify the loving kindness of your heavenly Father? That when you first confess faith in Christ, that you're not made aware of all the sins that you've committed against him. See, God shows such patience with you. Not only with your repeated sins, but also with the sins that you're ignorant of. And as you grow in holiness, you understand that, deeper level of your sin. Now imagine if God revealed all your sins to you at once, it would crush you. Yet God is patient with you. Only when you're mature and you learn more about your loving and faithful Savior does He reveal how much you sin against Him. And yet He still loves you. And although your guilt has been removed, the penalty of sin no longer applies. You're a new creature in Christ. You no longer have a slave. You're no longer a slave to that sinful nature that kept you captive, obeying its passions, obeying the filth of sin. But there's still that lingering pollution of sin, a putrid smell of corruption, an aroma that lingers, in your nature. So you're freed from the sin's power, but it still draws you. The gravity of sin is no longer forceful enough to keep you in its orbit, but if you wander too close, it'll suck you back right in. See, the Christian pilgrimage becomes a constant battle with sin, scrubbing the stench of sin from your garments. The more you remove sin, keeping away what stains you, the more you start to look and smell clean. But if you walk along that edge of that lagoon of sin, you find yourself falling into it. Christ picks you up He picks up your filth-covered body, and the process starts all over again. And it might not be a head-to-toe cleansing. Maybe you grow in maturity, and it's just a sleeve or a stain on your pants. But that constant temptation remains to dip that toe into the sewer of our sin. And yet, no matter how hard you scrub, the stench of sin still remains, reminding that you have not received your new garment. You have received the receipt for your new garment. It's been fully paid for. You're just awaiting the arrival of it. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, if I'm going to receive a new garment a new glorified body, why should I go all through all the work to trying to keep this one clean? And Hebrews reminds you to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or in John 15, that every branch in Christ that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So if you are in Christ, if you belong to Him and He is yours, it's not a matter if you clean your garment, but a matter of when. It's a consequence of being in Christ. You will not be able to help it. Now maybe that's not your struggle. Maybe you see this garment and are perpetually scrubbing it. To get the stains out, you stress that your garment has to be spotless as Christ's. And then, if you think that you have to be like Jesus, you're undermining his work. He has done all the work so that you don't have to. It is finished, it is complete. He sat down, his work is done. He was perfect so that you get the opportunity to participate. Now, there's a big difference. Your garment does not have to be as clean as Christ because he gives to you his garment, his righteousness. The receipt is in your hand. You're just waiting the arrival of it. But in the meantime, you clean your garment because you live out of the joy of living as a son and daughter of the living God. You look to your elder brother, Jesus Christ, with wow and amazement. You want to be more like him, wanting to look just like him. You want to talk like him. You want to hate the things that he hates and love the things that he loves. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Because he's given to you the privilege to participate with him. So you wait patiently with the receipt for your new garment, clenched in your hand until you receive that inheritance you wait for. And just like the pattern of Jesus Christ, after your death, the promised resurrection of the body, you receive the payment of that new garment, a new resurrected body. The transaction is complete. Finally, you are freed from that presence of sin where there's no more worry of a soiled or stained garment. You're the recept- you receive salvation. You receive salvation. No more worry about sinning against your Lord. No more worrying about disobedience or backsliding. You can love and worship him to the honor and glory that's due to his name. The whole work of Christ is finally realized. You see him face to face and you get to bask in his glory for all of eternity. See, Christ's work is accomplished and applied through all of salvation. There is no part of salvation that he is not applying to your life. See, just as we have been saved by grace, we are being saved by grace. It's a glorious work of Christ given to us by faith. An all-sufficient, completed work of salvation by our Lord and Savior. See, he's not the only one, the only the earner of our salvation, but he is also the one who gives it. But who does he give this work to? Is it for everyone? Now, the author of Hebrews speaks to those who are being sanctified, and we've already understood the process that, from start to finish, it's a work of Christ. You are freed from the penalty, from the power from the presence of sin. But who are those that the author is talking about? Now we know from our survey through the canons that it's the elect. Those who from before the foundation of the world were given to Christ, and Christ, by his saving work, would extend his benefits to all of the elect. And this can only be the case if the work of Christ was for everyone in the world, what about the reprobate? We know that from our study of the canons, there's a group called the reprobate, a group which we know are those who passed over and were left in their sin, in their misery, who rejected Christ, who want nothing to do with him. Now think with me. If Christ died for the whole world, and some rejected him. What does that say about the success of the work of Christ? It does not make for a very successful Savior. But also, what about the justice of God? If Christ atoned for the sins of everyone, yet you reject Christ, are you still punished for your sins? See, we know the resting place for the reprobate is hell. So, does that not make God unjust to require what has been already paid for? Is he double dipping and exercising his wrath? See, first, Christ paid the debt. And the second time, you are enduring the wrath of God for all of eternity. That makes God extremely unjust. Therefore, it has to be that Christ and his salvific work extends only to a specific people. A people called the elect from every tongue, tribe, and nation given to Christ before the foundation of the world. And those who are Elect or being kept by Christ. He works from the beginning to the end of your salvation and he cannot fail. Nothing can separate you from his hand. Not tribulation, distress, or persecution. There's nothing. Take comfort in that. That from point A to Z, he is the Alpha and the Omega of your salvation. And you are being preserved to the very end where he will present to himself a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. The bride of Christ presented to her faithful bridegroom no longer with the stain and stench of sin, perfect and without blemish, as if they've never sinned nor had been sinners. Perfect and holy. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there are two types of people in this world. Those who accept Christ and will reign with Him, or those who reject Him and will be placed under His footstool. Christ, perfect, all-sufficient, completed work, accomplished salvation from beginning to end. And he promises to give it to all those who come to him. Salvation is only yours by faith in Jesus Christ. So turn from your sin, come to Christ. Come to him and accept him as your Lord and as your Savior. And remove yourself from under the footstool of Christ. Come to him and reign with him as adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, acknowledging such a wonderful gift that you have given to the elect, that you have given to us a sufficient Savior who has completed for us all that we stand in need of. Lord, let this not puff up our minds, but make us humble. Make us all the more eager to work for Christ, To labor for him in his kingdom. That we have the privilege that he has made us partakers in his kingdom work. Father, thank you so much for the sufficiency of our Savior. That he has given to us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. It's through his name that we pray all these things. Amen.